Hey, 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 Manitoba Villians, how you doing? You're listening to the Manitobaville podcast as Mahangel. What is up? What is up? It's summertime. We're replaying some interviews that we have in the old archives, as promised. This is our writer series, and we have a great writer today. He writes all kinds of stuff. Music. I think he writes words. Must write words. He's Danny Sure. Does it all. Producer. Writer. Musician. Driver of an EV. Goalie. All kinds of stuff. Anyway, we talked to Danny quite a while back. Years back. He was one of the first people that was nice enough to let us come into his home and have a chat about what makes Danny Sure tick. And we also followed up when he was releasing his movie stand so um we're gonna tag that on to this interview it's not too long this whole thing will run an hour and a half or so but you can have a breather in between we'll uh, pop in just to uh, let you know you can take a break and uh yeah it's pretty fun pretty fun pretty scary at times um bodies do strange things to us as we're rolling along and Danny sure is no exception so stay tuned for the update it's uh, an interesting little story about what happened to Danny during that that in-between period that antebellum period between making and releasing a movie in the modern times modern day and age of streaming and digital and movie theaters and tv and all that kind of stuff so it's quite the interesting story, so stick around. Um, yeah, rate, review, rewind, figure us out, help us figure out our audience. Uh, word of mouth, tell people about Manitobaville. You can find us through social media. You can find us, wow, through a podcatcher. You can find us online at manitobaville.ca. You can use our contact form to give us info on stories or people do you think we should be talking to and doing interviews with? And of course, coming up this fall, we're going to have a great, um, we're working on a new series. So that's going to be exciting. We'll give you news at the time when we uh, get that together. That'll be a fun thing. And um, what else is going on? It's just summertime. Everybody's kicking back. Everybody's kicking back and relaxing the way it should be. <laughs> just sitting in the backyard having a pop having a having an ice drink having a uh, a kombucha maybe maybe that's your thing maybe iced tea maybe something in your iced tea maybe not it all depends there's all kinds all kinds of good things to do in the summer so anyway we're going to jump right in here we're going to um we're going to get into this interview with Danny Sure, part of our summertime writing series. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. It was really kind of neat to find out what goes on behind the scenes and what makes somebody tick. The way Danny's put Manitoba on the map, Winnipeg on the map. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. So we're going to jump in and get to that interview right here on the Manitobaville podcast right after this.
Christmas time in Winnipeg. Yes. In the house of Danny Shear, <laughs> looking around. Books on the wall, piano, Christmas tree. The Christmas tree smelled entirely better until today. Yeah, <laughs> just lost the smell. Oh, they're beautiful though, eh? Yeah. So you're doing a movie. Yeah, oh my God. Um, and, you know, it's been so long that it seems like it's been all of my life. But it's 13 years since the idea uh, came. It was in the first run of the first stage show at Rainbow Stage in 2005. And... Uh, Believe it or not, it was Jeff Goldblum who was sitting beside me, and he was really taken with the show and pounding me in the chest all the time. And when it was done, he said, this would make a great movie, big story, big ideas. And I remember at that moment thinking, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but having no idea what it takes. But you learned. Uh, uh, yeah. And it just about killed me. Um, I learned that theater and film scripts are not the same. Like, not even by any stretch of the imagination. Even though you could watch both the stage show, and you can, at Rainbow Stage this <laughs> summer, and then the movie later in the fall, and you'd say, well, that was the same story. But the way it unfolds... Um, they're just structurally so unlike that no wonder they don't want the original writers doing the adaptation to screen. Yeah. They find that a lot with uh, books mm -hmm. that turn into movies and right. they get a lot restructured. Um, it is a different craft altogether. And it's amazing how some writers can write for the stage, but mm -hmm. typically not their own work. Well, we naively believed we can do it. And I'm speaking about yeah. my co-writing partner, Rick just, Chafe, and just I. put on a different hat. Yeah, so <laughs> we hired a movie script writing consultant, uh, and we soon learned that they weren't the same, but we had the luxury of just taking years and years to keep working at it because... There was no studio behind us that said, you know, this has got to be ready by spring. Yeah. So it took forever to get the script. And then after that, you get the cast. And then the script changes again and again and again. Why? And Why does it change? That's something I've always wondered. It's well, people a say, big, well, a big we have, part we have of a it. script, but mm -hmm. now we have to, for some reason. A big part of it is the director. So as soon as we got our director, and that was years uh, okay. in the making as well. It's not just the cast, it's so the So it's director. a different vision now comes in and yep. looks at it, sees yeah. it. And he immediately loved it and saw the merit in it and just made some suggestions. You know, like, uh, and I'm speaking about Robert Adetui. He's born in Sudbury. His dad was the first Nigerian man to move to Sudbury. It's a funny story because <laughs> his dad wanted to go to Texas. He took the wrong train and then up in Sudbury. Yeah, the wrong train. Already. So uh, his dad from Nigeria married a German immigrant, and Robert, a man of color, grew up among the Ukrainians and the Poles in Sudbury and likes Holopchi and pierogies, and he's a goalie. It's the most Canadian story <laughs> there is. 
but Robert moved to Los Angeles to pursue his directing and writing career, got to Los Angeles three days after the Rodney King race uh, riots. Yeah. So Robert knows a thing or two about race issues in the United yeah. States. But Robert said to me, uh, this is a very white story. And it was. I was Danny, the Ukrainian white man, <laughs> writing about my experience and what I thought the 19 general strike story was broadly about. Little did I know what I didn't know. And he said, might I suggest considering a character being a person of color? And I said, absolutely. Let's figure out how we can do it. Mm -hmm. And was I, that so that's not historically accurate or is well it, you is it? i i didn't know okay. and so my question you know, right you now look, is your yeah, question you sure have, you, so you look yeah. at the pictures and you i've seen from 1919 one picture one of uh it was a porter's union mm -hmm. exclusively black right that's all i'd seen i'd never even seen pictures of people of color of that era. Yeah. Boy, was I wrong. So, and that's typically yeah. what they did. So as they came north, they would work as porters. And it was Correct. like that in Winnipeg then. Too. Yeah. But okay. I mean, the only picture I'd ever saw was guys. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I just didn't even have any awareness. What the, were the women doing? You know, <laughs> yeah, their families. So I get off the phone call with Robert and I go on blackhistorycanada.ca and it was black history month. And up comes the story, the first headline, the Oklahoman refugees. Okay. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so the term a free state, mm -hmm. which Oklahoma was mm -hmm. prior to 1907, meant that freed slaves could live yeah. relatively unharassed. But when Oklahoma became a state, it just became brutal. The lynchings mm -hmm. in Oklahoma were atrocious. Yeah. So in 1912, 6,000 people left Oklahoma and came straight north to Canada. Wow. To Winnipeg and Regina and Edmonton. There was a First World War black regiment in Edmonton mm -hmm. of Oklahoman refugees. Wow. And there's a little town near Vegreville. If you know Vegreville, it's like Yuki Central. Yeah. Next door to that is an all-black town called Amber Valley. And there's this funny story on BlackHistoryCanada.ca uh, okay. of an older black gentleman saying, I thought all blacks ate pierogies and hall of tea in Canada. <laughs> so then we did a bit more research, but specifically my co-writer, uh, co-writing partner, Rick Chafe and I. And if you look at the census of some of the wealthy homes on Wellington Crescent, it lists the race of the help. Okay. And there's a little B beside a third of the help on really? Wellington Crescent. Okay. Oh, because they lived in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So these were people that were never in the pictures. Right. But there were thousands from Oklahoma in Winnipeg in 1919. So it's like, like they were just billeted and then you don't see them as a. I don't know. As a community but that way. For sure. Yeah. Certainly, they just were not included in the picture. So yeah. Robert said to me, let's put them back in the picture. Let's put them in the picture. So... The kid stays in the picture. The role of Emma, 
formerly a white Irish woman, mm -hmm. became Emma Jones, the Oklahoman refugee. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, Barack Obama got in trouble when he s used the phrase, whether he said some blacks or just blacks in general were unwilling immigrants to North America. This mm -hmm. is about five years ago, I'm thinking. Okay. And it caused an uproar because slaves can't be immigrants. Right. But in the case of the Oklahoman refugees to Canada, mm -hmm. that's an instance of blacks being immigrants to Canada and not directly from slavery. Yeah. So it's very intriguing. And then the story deepens. So right about then, I was <laughs> writing a song that would be or I intended to be the closing credit song. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to encompass themes from the movie, but also be bigger and, and talk about other stuff. So on that day, I tried as a white guy to put myself in the shoes of the Black Lives Matter movement and write a song mm -hmm. that spoke to that. Okay. But still make it vague enough that it could work Anywhere. Not just for that. Yeah. An anytime song. Yep. Yeah. So it was called Stand, and it's basically about standing up for what you believe in. Um, and the lyric has this nifty turn about, I'm tired of being told to sit down. I'm tired of being told to lie down. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stand. Um, and the song turned out just wonderfully. So because it was a Black Lives Matter vibe that I wanted to get, I got what I consider to be the preeminent singer of color in Winnipeg. Her name is Lisa Bell. Your listeners might know of her. Mm. She's Whitney Houston. She has a killer voice. And what has she done before they've been She's seen her? been in musical theater and she performs with many bands. I happen to see her a lot with the Ron Paley band. Okay. She's just killer. And so Lisa came and song, sang this song, Stand, right there, about three meters from where we're sitting. Yeah. I love the sound of my living room for recording. You'll notice, check this out, hang on, as I snap. Yeah. Just, just a little bit of reverb. There's a bookshelf on the other side that diffuses it nicely. Hmm. Listen to this, hang on. Woo! Oh, See, yeah. just a nice little room reverb. It's yeah. perfect. Um, a little slap back. Yeah. Uh, but when you stand right in the center, it just sounds gorgeous. It resonates. So she sung the song in 20 minutes, as all singers are. She was apologetic, <laughs> saying, oh, I have a cold, and et cetera, et cetera, every excuse in the book. <laughs> but it was perfect. And I sent the song to the director. And he put it on his phone, forgot about it for a day or so, and went for a jog, heard the song, called me back and said, I found this song. We got to put it in the movie. <laughs> it was funny. So it was that song. Okay. Anyway, that song Stand then weaseled its way in from the closing credits into a scene with Emma the Maid. Okay. okay. And from that point on, Robert said, we're calling the movie Stand. And at first it was just kind of a joke. Yeah. But the song was so strong 
it took over not just title track status, there's not only good song status, but became the title track. Yeah. By the end of the movie, everybody was calling the movie Stand. So how did that work for you? Well, it was tough for me because that's like saying your child of 13 years is just going to have a new name, you know? Yeah. Somebody one day said, so it took me a month or so, but it was a religious moment for me when we finished the teaser trailer, two and a half minutes long, Mm -hmm. about mid-November, and that song underscored the teaser um there was just no doubt in my mind that the movie was better titled that and then the logo was an easy switch right five letters in strike (laughs) with the little (laughs) baton logo just switch it to stand and it just it's it's much bigger So this is all a long-winded answer about there's just like one of a thousand ways that it's always changing. Plus, it's a musical. There's a phrase that Mm -hmm. musicals are never written. They're rewritten. (laughs) (laughs) And one of Robert's big influences was to say, in this era of Hamilton, the -hmm. musical, where a period story has totally contemporary music yeah totally contemporary hip-hop stuff so he was like people yeah. don't care anymore there's no like back in the days of fiddler on the roof well mm-hmm. it had to have the sound of that era mm-hmm. um now and you see this example most recently in the greatest showman that music is just current mm-hmm pop music well jesus christ superstar that too yeah I mean, classic example right. of yeah for sure just in your face mm-hmm. this is this whole story being told down right so we did that so all the songs got a a remake and mm-hmm. some of them are almost non-recognizable in their switch um some of them we made so very did, hip-hop did you add you know? songs or anything or like change out a lot of uh, we deleted songs more than anything because in the stage show there's 18 songs okay there's only 10 in the movie more if dialogue you, and more exactly more if songs. you look at most movie musicals there's only seven to ten songs because mm-hmm. that's all the time you got in two ish hours yeah whereas a stage show you can go longer can you give that a twist just so i can see the numbers it's just the when it records it's the uh this color so if it ever stops i'll oh, see okay that's all. okay so so that's crazy eh? you learn a little bit of a new thing about history and it just yeah and it just sort of folds the whole leaf right over and then get this and this was like weeks before we're shooting my partner rick discovers the story about the indigenous first world war regiments this was Mm in okay in the winnipeg free press this past uh, Remembrance Day. Yeah. There were Métis and Indigenous, indigenous regiments uh, that fought with honour, came back, and weren't allowed to go into the... Uh, uh, what's the Veterans Halls called? The, 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 the Legions? 
Yeah, they weren't allowed yeah. to go into the legions. And so in that case, a story that originally on stage was the white Irish uh, O'Reilly, we switched up for the Métis returned veteran Gabriel. Okay. And that was played by a Winnipeg actor named Gabriel Daniels. And I'm telling you, it is so damn emotional. Um, and again, a story that I just didn't know about when I wrote it the first time. Mm -hmm. Enough time transpired that we now found out about it. And it makes it so strong, so strong. It's incredible. There's, on June 21st, 1919's front page of the Free Press, little story down off the side that says, Return soldiers, bring back your uniforms. You're not allowed to wear them like you're wearing them. They would come back, and they would just wear them all the time, mm -hmm. kind of as a sign of... Well, it's maybe the only clothes they had, too, in could some be. cases. They're a good pair. Yeah, and a badge of honor, mm -hmm. and kind of a reminder as well that I'm a veteran, yeah. and you must, you owe me some uh, regard. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in the movie, I'm giving this away a little bit, but there's a line, Gabriel, the Métis returned soldiers, asked, when are you going to take off the uniform? And he said, the only time I'm treated like a white man is when I wear this uniform. Yeah. And I just find that just a killer, killer scene. So that's just another way that it grew into mm -hmm. something different. And, you know, and when you change the script in this spot, that means you got to change it in 10 spots before. Yeah. So it's a big, big house of cards. <laughs> so when do you decide when, like you can add, with Winnipeg, you could add in ethnicities to beat the band, right? Like For sure. Just, so yeah. where do you, where do you Well, at some point we drew the line. That was the two instances where we changed up characters that it just made more sense. It's more contemporary it's weird it's more contemporary because it's diversity on screen mm -hmm. but it's also better history because it's what was happening in 1919 that just didn't happen to be in the story yeah so yeah i mean at some point we had to start filming <laughs> <laughs> um, but those are the two uh most obvious changes but what's interesting in a movie that's a period piece with a ton of accents so there's the Slavs, their mm -hmm. accents, and then there's the uh, Anglo-British accent. There's actually someone with an American English accent. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, Oklahoman black accent, the most Canadian accent of all is the Gabriel Métis character, mm -hmm. which I find really interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Winnipeg way back when, I think it was the 1880s, and then again recently in the New York Times was described as having uh, sheepskin coat diversity, as in lots of different colors, but everybody's wearing a warm coat. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty that's much Winnipeg. Well, exactly. It's just a, 
it's amazing how seen from afar it's such a fearful place to be Mm -hmm. and people who come here for short visits in in the cold they get this burned in image of how terrible it is then they go and talk about it on national television (laughs) somewhere and and everybody gets this image and and uh you know people that do come here to live or stay for a while they just they see it completely differently yeah and it's um because everything is here like even the weather I mm-hmm. was to, to talk about this before, but if you just sit on your porch or your back deck every day, you're going to experience mm-hmm. world weather of some kind. Yeah. Where, you know, Antarctica one day, three days of Vancouver rain another day. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of like it all comes here. But, uh, and the stories are here too. And that's sort of what you found is this microcosm, what's one instant yeah. that, that sucks in everything and blows it all back out. Mm-hmm. In this amazing way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ernest Hemingway said, you write about what you know. But I also interpret that as you should write about what no one else will care about. <laughs> <laughs> because no one yeah. cares about our, or I shouldn't say no one cares, but it's up to us as artists to frame our stories internationally Mm -hmm. so you know no one was coming looking for the 1919 general strike as a parable for today and that that's our mission what is the parable to today oh my god pick the no just the ways just one just the one i think (laughs) the one i mean it's a powerful movie about powerless people Mm -hmm. and so however you define powerless see this is where it started out as a story about the general strike but now how it's bigger is that although set against a labor event it's really really broadly about um, what happens when governments abuse people that don't have power Right. So fill in the blanks, whether that's, uh, and I'm, or even corporations too. Wasn't there a lot of corporate sort of structure at the center of that whole thing where the business uh, owners had a, had a paradigm for sure. I started mean, to shift. And so the powers that be in that case, the, exactly. The, the, when, the, the, when the powers that be, uh, coalesce to maintain it. Yep. And they can't because the dam has too many yeah <laughs> so <laughs> on the fingers to hold the dam so yeah. to answer the question i believe its biggest parallel is the way uh broadly immigrants and um uh Groups that are marginalized are being treated by society. And by society, mostly I mean government. Mm. So, you know, in the United States, it's about the way the government has made immigrants, specifically Mexicans Mm -hmm. uh, and Muslims, the target uh, which in 1919, the faces were just a little bit different, but that's the equivalent. In Europe, the way migrants are being treated, whether it's 
migrant labor or just migrants showing up at the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so the broadest word for it is nativism. Who gets to choose who gets to come in? Who gets to choose who gets rights and who doesn't? So it's a really big human rights issue. And it's also you know? like who gets to claim they were here first? Yeah. And how well, does that just, play out? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's all so that confusing. stuff, you know? Because when you look at it, you say, oh, here's a power structure. And if you if you just, like, we're talking just in these last few sentences, look at it again. Yeah. It's like there is, that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Nobody has a right to yep. whatever. So then how do you rebuild that in a way that's yep. sort of fair for everyone? Yeah. So th- there's huge, huge issues, big, big questions. And you wouldn't think that it's latent in that story from 1919. Do you see, uh, do you see that? Even? To say nothing yeah. of the labor story. Yeah. <laughs> but do you see, like when you did the musical, when you wrote Strike and you put it on, and you'd watch the audience as they're watching the play, and as it comes around to the end, and how are they reacting to it? Like, what do you see in those faces? And can you tell different types of who who fits in where in society by the way they're reacting to the show? Mostly everyone reacts with a bizarre, um, happy shock because they don't really know what to expect. On paper, it doesn't really work. Musical set against the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. Mm-hmm. Like, who the hell would want to see yeah, that? Yeah. So uh, I quote uh, this one particular individual that came up to me who kind of summarized it for a lot of people he said i hate unions and i've never seen a musical that i liked and you changed my mind about both (laughs) (laughs) so that's a measure of Uh a someone that's got an open mind but the power of music specifically to operate on a different level than your normal sort of uh, non-musical script. And um, it's doing what art should do, which is, you know, educate and edify and entertain. But I mean, if you can also cause a shift in uh, opinion or belief that's a good thing not that i'm on some mission to control people's minds (laughs) it's just if you can cause someone to what mission are you on because that well it seems like that would be a good subject if say say somebody had a big uh social view of things and they wanted to really well then they should become a script writer because they say uh, you should never write scripts about causes. Like things you're passionate about. You should pick No, a, no, you can be passionate about something, yeah. but you don't write a script about a cause. Right. You write a script about people. About a situation that people No, you write a script there. about people. About people. How people react in a certain situation. And in a well-balanced script, you have people reacting in all kinds of ways. Right. And you're just showing, you know, Shakespeare said, put put a mirror as to her human nature. Mm-hmm. So you're just showing how all kinds of people react. And Hitchcock always had a MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> so yours is the strike. Yeah. But you're talking, you're just showing people 
Yeah, you're just showing how people react in a certain situation. Yeah. And by people observing that, they learn. So when you ask, what is my mission? Uh, everyone that knows me said I should have been a teacher because I do take arts as education seriously. Like mm -hmm. it's, um, I got books on the wall there. Look at that one, Robert McGee story. Mm -hmm. um, any script writer will tell you the way we learn about the human condition is from stories from when we're or it's to be a, or it's to be a human condition yes yeah and 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 be able to see it in yourself like that's yeah. something a lot of people don't don't do or it's just something that either turns on or off for people or yeah. not off but doesn't turn some on. some people don't want to do it yeah you know like it's not a fun thing to discover <laughs> bad things about yourself but uh, I personally love uh, theater in particular, but the the act of watching a play, and I mean that as in something played out, a script, mm -hmm. whether live theater or a movie, um, I think it's the best and the most fun way to learn about human psychology. Yeah. And the cool thing is just like playing hockey is a great way to stay in shape. Uh, you're having fun <laughs> yeah. when you're doing it. So Well, the idea with, with that is to have fun with your friends. Mm -hmm. You get exercise as a sidebar and you also learn how to play a structured game. Yeah. And you learn like discipline. That. You learn all yeah. kinds of stuff. But mainly you're if your friends weren't out there, yeah, you're not doing any of that. Right. So, so in the same way, uh, seeing a good movie, uh, a good play, a good script of any sort, um, just turns my crank. So my mission is to do uh, works of art, even if it's just a pop song, mm -hmm. that can help people learn about the human condition. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yup. <laughs> Jeez. Goes by, eh? Yeah. So, so Danny, what everybody wants to know is, where's Chantal? Like, tell us all about Chantal. Where's Chantal? What's she doing? How do you? <laughs> how, do, how how is that right now? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I got this theory that in Manitoba there's like roughly a million people and um, I personally over the course of the last 20 years know 10 people that they just have a voice that when they stand right there and sing a song and they can Pretty which, much, which I'll, I'll do later for you. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much finish a song in 15 minutes to a half an hour. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of voices that really are 10 in a million. They were born with it. Yeah. It doesn't matter it's if they're gift, sick yeah. or they're yeah. smoking or they're hungover. They just have that killer voice. Chantel is one of those. And then out of those 10, two or three go on to larger careers. Right. So, to this day, uh, that's a pretty religious experience to have recorded a voice of that sort. How did that, 
how far back do we have to go to say where did that sort of start with you guys? Uh, 1987, about June or July. Uh, that was the first year I was freelancing. I had worked at Long McQuaid for eight months to the day. And yeah. I said, I'm going to be a freelance composer. Okay. And that summer, I started writing jingles. And one of the first ones was for Krevko and John Kerviazic, God bless him. He said, yeah, the commercial was pretty good, but my daughter would have done better. And of course, I hear that from every yeah. parent. Oh, yeah. uh, and he said, I'll have her call you. And she called in like two hours and said, Mr. Schur, I'd like to sing jingles for you. And I think that summer, I don't remember exactly, but it was a lot of jingles that she sung on. And she would just mm -hmm. come and do it in like 15 minutes. And uh, that's how we first started working together. What was your impression then, the first jingle she came in? Well, she was 13. And that jingle, which was the first one she did? Hmm, I think it was a Remax commercial. Uh, I mean, you can just see someone at 13 mm -hmm. that has a world-class voice. She was really, really, and is really, really good at singing harmonies in an instant. Okay. So here's the the first track and as fast as you can spin the next one <laughs> here come the harmonies so she's like a composer's dream come true nice nice and and so beyond jingles you just did enough jingles that you saw talent in it and well yeah and then so that was when my career goal was to write songs for singers like her yeah. and try and get recording deals and it took a long time, uh, in the middle of which she had a life-threatening accident that oh. just about killed her. She was in a, I'm not sure if it was uh, the degree between moped and motorcycle, but mm. sort of a moped-ish thing going fast enough in Italy um, mm. that oh, wow. she had a very severe head injury. It was a number of years before she could get back in the saddle, by which point we then started collaborating with Chris Burke Gaffney. And then by now we're talking like 93, 94, mm -hmm. and 95 before. Um, before you started really working right. on the new vision. Yep. And then it's a long time between that and success, too. Well, we the first singles, I guess. How long was that? When was the first singles? Oh. I think that single. record came out in 96 and uh, oh, it was pretty immediate success. Like her yeah. first single was God Made Me. And I think the second one was Surrounded. Uh, I can't remember the exact mm -hmm. order, but um, yeah, it was pretty quick success after that. How does that feel? Uh utterly fantastic because that was what I wanted to do in high school <laughs> <laughs> you know just what were you doing in high school then let's jump back to high school Danny sure sitting the piano. piano was in the bedroom and my woodshed was my yeah bedroom which is right beside my parents bedroom <laughs> so I was were quite they, were they musical 
Which, which uh, my, by the way, would make it worse as you're learning, I suppose, right? <laughs> For them. My mom was in a choir. My yeah. uh, sister was in a choir. And they didn't play piano. But yeah, they were musical. There's always yeah. music in my mom's family. Yeah. My dad, not so much. Mm-hmm. But I had a piano in the bedroom. And on top of the piano, I had a couple of synthesizers and recording deck. And the room was small. It was half the size of this room. So about you know, eight by 12 and you put a piano mm-hmm. and a bed, yeah. there was no room to walk whatsoever. <laughs> but I had my little rig and I read keyboard. You couldn't even have a mess in there. Nope. Those two. <laughs> no. Uh, That's every kid's dream. Yeah. <laughs> I read keyboard magazine religiously and got, you know, the gear that they recommended. I, I gotta say I had the first, uh, of all the synthesizers of the day yeah back in Ethelbert <laughs> and how uh who were you listening to on the radio like what did you listen to prior to that period even when you were I listened younger? to the radio religiously I remember January 1st 1980 I started listening to the top 40 mm-hmm. and so my teaching method was whatever the top 40 was and I would buy that sheet music. And learn that song. Yeah. So I remember January, look it up, January 1st, 1980. It was the Cars, my Sharona. Okay. And at that time, I wasn't musically aware enough to go do da, do do da, do do da, what that riff is, and go, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's just octaves. And then I'd look at it in the sheet music and go, that's just octaves. What the <laughs> hell is that? So it was a really good reverse engineering system. Did that turn something on in your head where it went just octaves could be also music like the did, did it did uh something happen in there? well of course yeah like when you when you reverse engineer something then it becomes clear to you yeah uh, and then you can just listen it, to because the some people would look at tabulature or sheet music and not be able to translate it into music even sure. though they might be well i mean i read music i was just i was kind of but that's sort of a that's a technicality of the creative mind isn't it to well it's to just the, at... your degree of musical perception yeah i was not good at that's called oral uh as an a-u-r-a-l mm-hmm. musical intelligence where you just listen to something you go i know what that is i know what's going on there right at that point i wasn't musically smart enough to go oh that's the one chord that's the five chord i remember mm-hmm. when i was trying to figure out you know mary's boy child by uh boney m yeah i just thought that was the cat's ass <laughs> in 1980 82 mm-hmm. and i listened to it and i listened to it and i couldn't figure it out and now mm-hmm. i could figure it out in two seconds you know it's just you just become more musically aware yeah but so that was uh, what i was doing was listening to dick clerk's uh, <laughs> top 40 buying the sheet music at treadmills mm-hmm. tread wells on portage avenue right across from the bus depot okay. i'd come into town into winnipeg um, once a month every two months and i would buy a big pile of sheet music at that point so you're talking about living in ethelbert Okay, for our listeners, where is that? 300 kilometers north of Winnipeg on Highway 10, about 50 kilometers north of Dauphin. <clears throat> oh, was, oh, yeah. the middle of nowhere. I got you now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I always say the middle of some, my, somebody's middle of nowhere, somebody yeah. else's middle of somewhere. Exactly. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's a very beautiful area. I grew yeah. up on a beautiful farm. I had a 
charmed um, <clears throat> youth. I had a great mm. music teacher in Dauphin. Dauphin was the local biggest mm -hmm. town. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and she, this is Marilyn Borgford uh, in Dauphin, uh, at first kind of just tolerated my writing original stuff. And then by I, the time. This is around when you're 13, 14 ish? Yep. And then by the time I was 15, she actually bought my desire to not do Royal Conservatory, but just switch to composition all the time. Yeah. And she supported that. But I think Neat. the deal was I still had to play the Royal Conservatory stuff for the yeah. festivals. Um, but I could also write my own stuff. So when I came to university, it was actually for composition. Okay. So, and then at that period, you're coming into the city to, and you're able to buy sheet music to take back and, mm -hmm. and work on. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I listened to CKDM, uh, the Dauphin radio station, mm -hmm. and the program director there, he might still be the program director, Bruce. Um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting Bruce's last name. That's horrible. Uh, look it up, CKDM, <laughs> Bruce. But um, he was also the manager of the local Top 40. That was the name of the mm -hmm. store. And I would just walk in and he'd be like, you got to get this. So one yeah. of the first ones was um, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. Um, Eurythmics. Eurythmics um all the cool stuff of that time yeah plus and that what, was a good period too oh yeah that was like all that stuff my kids are listening to right now yeah uh i was super into the police mm -hmm. like synchronicity album mm -hmm. and of course now my daughter's listening to uh russians from sting's solo album anyway uh so between bruce and top 40 and whatever's on ckdm and the dick clark thing and also whatever keyboard magazine recommended right and they were an early recommender of toto okay and oh my god i loved toto 16 i think the yeah. album was so was it anything like emerson lake and palmer and those kind of guys in there like, no it was the straight were you aware of those that kind oh of i was aware of those guys yeah. but i didn't didn't really dig that progressive yeah, it was stuff just something else yeah i mean i liked yes Right. from the time of that album that has uh, Owner of a Broken Heart, mm -hmm. Owner of a Lonely Heart. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, just that whole era. And uh, then came to university in Winnipeg in 84. Bring your piano? Uh, no, actually. Nope. Uh, there's another piano. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I did. That's right. Yeah. We sold it uh, relatively soon. got a better one. But, um, yeah, I did bring my piano. I remember that now on the pickup truck from Ethelbert. Were you playing it? Like uh, <laughs> five easy pieces? <laughs> Driving along. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No Jack Nicholson references, I guess. <laughs> we keep that up. But, uh, okay. So that's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Wait, so what year did you come to university? 84. Okay. That was a great year in rock. Yeah. That was groundbreaking. There's a lot, like 83 leading up to that. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Yeah. So you must have felt a big a big wind 
big vibe wind going on? Uh, well, I, whether I was deluded or not, I thought, who needs university? I'm going to become a rock star. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, you, but you kind of did. Well, no. I mean, I soon realized that was why I switched to musicals about 2000. I uh, found that I didn't want to be away from home because I had a family already. I was it the Chantal's success that was was that pulling you in different directions? That's partially, like, but it was actually after Chantal that I started working with. Uh, do you remember the country group um, Country Hearts from Altona? And I actually did quite a bit of playing in the band, and we traveled around, and it was really really fun. But uh, I just realized that I really wanted to focus on just pure writing, not writing for a group mm. or an artist, uh, but writing longer form things like musicals. Right. And musicals is what I really, really loved. What I didn't mention is in addition to top 40 uh, in Dauphin, what I would go to see is all the musicals that were put on at the Daff Dauphin Allied Arts Center, and that was where I got my love of musicals. Yeah. I can clearly remember sitting in the back row of the balcony in Dauphin Allied Arts Center, seeing Brigadoon, and my sister was in that production. Nice. And I just thought, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to write those things. Yeah. And there was, like, high schools had a lot of music. Our high school did a lot of musicals. Like um, every year there's a musical. Not in Ethelbert. No, I'm and, just saying, uh, but in general. Absolutely. Was, yeah. But it, was it on stage in the in the cities? Like Brandon, was were they put on, when they did plays, I don't remember them being musicals. And even in Winnipeg. Well, Dauphin had MTC. and still has a musical theater troupe. Yeah. And I. So that's good to have that. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, again, looking from different perspectives, it's like. Yeah. It's like just to have that in that space. Yeah. And it's neat. it's a really beautiful auditorium. It's about a circa nineteen hundred converted fire hall okay. with a second floor, wood floor. It's where the music festival was, has a beautiful stage, nice grand piano, and uh they were great productions. Neat. I'll have to go see that place. Mm -hmm. They they still have community uh concerts there where uh, the local arts council programs concerts and has touring artists come there. Neat. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's like in Verdon, the odd. Yes. It's yeah. such a hidden, yeah. and it's completely like the odd, odd in Verdon is so hidden. Mm -hmm. It's like within the civic building. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go and find it. It's crazy. But they're out there, these neat, cool places. I just yeah. looked at a book on old movie houses, mm -hmm. movie theaters and yeah. around province. And it's just these hidden gems. It's wild. So you woodshed it for a long time. You're in the woodshed. Yeah, I didn't do ten thousand hours, but uh, <laughs> so I, did. And you felt more centered, I guess. Then, if you wanted to be a writer of bigger things, moving around with a band or traveling or touring, it, it sort of uh, a lot of people find that how you can say at some point, I don't feel that I'm in the center of my own life right now. And you sort of feel out there for sure at the whims of yeah. of other forces. What it came down to from a business perspective, too, is I wanted to manage just myself versus other mm -hmm. artists, you know. 
Okay. How many were you managed? Like, did you have a lot on the go? Well, when I say manage, I mean yeah. write and or manage and or produce. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you would do all of those. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you would just write and produce. Doc Walker is one that I would write and produce. But at that time, mm -hmm. their first two records also had the record label that uh, mm. they were put out on. And, you know, what that involves is also promoting at radio at that time to try and get them to right. play your stuff. So... Uh, All the hats. Yeah, yeah. So And waking up and not, you know, doing something different and not necessarily <laughs> yeah. wanting to, I guess. So I just wanted to, you have to do it. focus more on writing. Mm -hmm. So uh, that sort of... It was the birth of the try and write musicals because there's more writing to be done, more songs, more lyrics, more yeah. script, you know. So was Strike your first your first shot at it? No, it was my third, actually. In yeah. 2000, I had one called The Bridge at the then called Walker Theater. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote another one in the interim. And then Strike was my third. So three strikes, hmm. you're in the big time. Out of the park. That mm -hmm. was a big hit, wasn't it? I, what I saw, of all the media attention and all the... Uh, yep, I mean, we've been... It's, it's been pretty much any, everything I've done since then. It's toured the country, CBC National Radio Special, a couple of uh, films one directly about it, one sort of associated with it. Um, yeah, you know, like it just turned into my raison d'etre, sort of. Yeah. And is it, was it fun being in that? <laughs> sure. Or interesting, I, or did what you were learning as you went about other things? Yeah, like uh, it's 15 years, I have no idea where the time went. And there was always some variation of it, you know, like uh, Rick and I joke that we've written this script a hundred times because there's always some adaptation. You know, every time you do it, something changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. This time, Rainbow is doing it this summer and they'd like a version that's like the movie. Okay. So we had to do an adaptation of the stage <laughs> script to make it more like the movie. So, And you're like, it's, no, no, it's already <laughs> done. Just make funny. <laughs> it's kind of never ending. <laughs> yeah, it kind of cuts into a... I get, I, are a lot of them like that? Like if you go to Broadway and see a Broadway musical, oh, God, yeah. every time they yeah. produce it, it's... No, they, they really mean it when they say musicals aren't written, they're rewritten. So they're constantly, constantly yeah. being up, updated and changed. Yeah. That's amazing. So, how's your how's your keyboard abilities? Uh, <laughs> maintained, but no, I'm not. When I was 16, uh, I actually dug doing scales, chords, and arpeggios as like forearm exercise. Mm -hmm. I also play uh, goal in hockey. That's a big part of my life. Yeah, and my ability to handle the stick and poke check when I was 16 was amazing because <laughs> I had forearms like Popeye uh, from piano. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that people can forget 
the physical aspect of piano playing is tough and you know you can build some pretty big muscles mm-hmm. from just doing scales when you do scales hard for five minutes you got to burn in the forearms like you would not believe so in addition to those squeezing things to build your wrists mm-hmm. you do scales and you'll be good so i've always had pretty powerful forearms and plus, i'd be plus okay growing up on the farm too like yeah. something going on where, yeah for sure you know. um but I don't do an hour a day like I used to and mm-hmm. should. I can still play piano decently, but uh, I haven't kept up my technique quite what, as much. What do you play? Like if you sit down to the piano, what, what comes Usually some form of ragtime because it's so pianistic. You know, it's yeah. very it's very showy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fun uh, to listen to as yeah, you play it's very too. fun, yeah. So you're amusing yourself in a big way. Yeah, and I call it my um, dementia protector. Apparently, if you can play piano of that sort where it's um, it's taking a lot of thinking to stay straight. <laughs> right, right. So ragtime and playing card games and yeah. things like that, they recommend. Mm. That's wild. So is there still more to do? Oh my God! More to learn, more to yeah. If I only knew what I didn't know, Um, I'm. I feel like I'm just. Would you have been daunted in the early '90s when you said I'm going to be a freelance, or no, it was in the '80s you said. Yeah, you said you're going to be. Nah, because I was too cocky uh, to know otherwise. So what would you have thought then if you'd, at that moment when you're saying I'm this, what I'm going to do. Well, you and know what it's you like when you're 20, see, you but, think... But if you could see what's happened or what, the, you know, the kind of things you've gone through, experienced, accomplished, uh, worked your way through to an end successfully, what would you have thought of that? Uh, I would have thought then that I would have been able to done it within about three years of then. <laughs> <laughs> and it still uh, strikes me as uh, a pretty big miracle like making a movie of this size i had no idea what size is no idea what size movie well it's about seven times bigger than your average canadian production which is seven million bucks um and that's a joke compared to small american movies so it's seven million to make it or mm -hmm. seven times seven million no it's just seven. Seven. Ah, if we would add 49, that would have been something. But a, <laughs> small, trams, a small American <laughs> studio movie is mm-hmm. seven times yeah. that. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I remember George Clooney in the day making, like in the, they had a little period in there with Good Night and Good Luck. Yeah, you can make movies for two million were, bucks or no, something. No, they were making them for around seven, you know. And, sure, and, yeah. And they were good movies. Oh, yeah. Better than the 50 million or the yeah. 100 million dollar ones. So the the scale of it, I had no idea uh, just how difficult it would be. And it was very hard on me emotionally. I'm a pretty positive guy, but my partners will tell you that I was not <laughs> yeah. this summer, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, it probably kind of crushes you a little bit, the, the different pressures where you're not the financial pressure but you're not just, that's not your forte you're not a 
you're not sitting at a desk with a green visor on on the phone raising money for things all day. Well, so, I had raised the money, but no, but then uh, you're thrown into that role, so yeah. it's another different. Yeah, no, it was it's a different unknown. It was the unknown that scared me so much. I mm-hmm. could have been um, much more. I could have enjoyed it had I known things would have turned out okay. It was just because it was the first time with a scale of that sort and the weight of the world on me. How did you raise it? Well, I was going to say I had the weight of just about $3 million of private investment. Okay. You know. Like the family, s- friends, acquaintances, or people who and were interested. Not necessarily close friends, those, mm. but the most um, uh, notable business people <laughs> of the community, you know, so I right. could not let them down. Mm-hmm. And then a significant investment from the union movement in Canada and the United States Okay, couldn't let them down. Mm-hmm. The bank yeah. couldn't let them down. So, yeah, it was extremely difficult so you, you your production became too big to fail like really quickly oh in God. the early stages uh then. no it could have failed no but a it million times because over. you couldn't yeah i i couldn't let it yeah for sure yeah, yeah. it had to remain in, intact so i owe my partners uh a great debt for guiding me through that and uh it's turned out wonderfully but i had no idea how much it would take <laughs> So now it goes into, now you finished the movie. Yeah, we're in heavy post-production now. Yeah. Was that, I guess that was your first probably movie experience as well? Like in No, I've done other small movies. We did a small okay. feature film called Snake River, which was a, um, a Western, which I did all the music for and helped produce. Mm-hmm. And there just wasn't the pressure of that kind of budget. Yeah. And I've done lots of documentaries. Uh, I did a documentary about Terry Sachik where I did everything. I shot it, I edited it, mm-hmm. I composed the music, um, and it was forty thousand bucks. Yeah. We spent forty thousand dollars an hour on this movie. Yeah. You know, so it's a whole different scale when you got four hundred fifty extras. You're shutting down streets, yeah. redoing streets to make it look like nineteen nineteen. And, uh, and you're walking the tightrope, you're going to the other side. Yeah. And that's a that's sort of your vision. Yeah. And things are swirling yeah. around you. But I will say, it might have cost $7 million, but in classic Winnipeg way, we got a deal because yeah. it looks like 50 Yeah. It really does. You put it all on the screen. Yeah. Wow. So now it's going to come out, it's going to premiere where? Well, it'll premiere in sort of series all over the place. Uh, we should be done in a couple months, and then in an ideal world, we could get a premiere at Cannes in May, mm-hmm. or in Venice, or Telluride, or TIFF. We just don't know how that'll come to pass. Um, but you'll play. You'll try and play them all. Try and get well, it in you everywhere. You can't necessarily play them all, but you want to get one of them. 
and you know tiff would be a great one mm. um there'll not, be in not f- the, the gimli film festival probably not first (laughs) (laughs) oh that's in august Uh, (laughs) but uh we do know that the winnipeg red carpet premiere will be at the concert hall at some point in september okay uh and then commercial release you know mid-october november something like that okay so the pseudo christmas movie Mm, a little bit sooner yeah thanksgiving movie Mm -hmm. hey that works out Thanksgiving. Yep. <laughs> Talk about themes. And in the 100th year of, um, or in the 100th anniversary. Just in time. Mm-hmm. Was that planned, I guess? Yep. Yeah. So you're pretty happy about that. Because with delays that could happen in even movies, mm-hmm. where it's not just months. These are, they could be year de- exactly. yearly delays yep. or longer. Wow. Yep. Okay, great. So what else do you do? <laughs> this is all. Right. Well, uh, I said I wanted to stick to writing and uh, so much of making a movie is just producing, i.e. finding the money. Mm-hmm. So Now you learned how to do that. You're going to be dangerous. Yeah, we'll You'll have see. everything covered from composing, writing the songs, right up to yeah. putting the budget together. But, um, but that's a... That's not. Um, there is skill in it for sure. But and that's nothing to laugh at because a lot of highly successful people right. can, you know, they develop all those skills, mm-hmm. and then and then they just they just go, oh, that's how that's how it's done. I get it now. It takes a lot of work still, but it it you know once you've done something, it becomes something you know you can do. Uh, I don't belittle that side of it at all and there is a certain um, appeal to you know I, I hate to use the phrase but that part of the game because I mean with no money you can't make any films so uh, it is a big creative part and it's pretty fun you know we traveled all over the world raising the money yeah. All over. I went to Washington 12 times. San Francisco, Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, New York. Why are you going there? Uh, Who are you talking to when you go to places like that? Either private investment or unions. Unions pre-purchased digital downloads of the movie that will be provided to students across North America delivered through the learning portal of wow. the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, our okay. partner. So uh, so that gives you, yeah, so once it's released, like that gives you a really wide, yep. like life-wise, Absolutely, like yeah. release-wise, that's and, like huge. And that is a very big part of the learning part of it, the post-release release to... Um, students yeah uh as a history piece um it's a big part of how the movie got made Mm. and a big part of the reason it should have been made you know because it's such an educational piece yeah well that and that's yeah because that that's probably the one thing you're thinking when you wanted to make it is you'd like everybody to see it but how do you do 
mm-hmm. that where you have to draw people into a theater and movies are hot for a week and then they fall off the next week, fall off the next week. Six months later, the DVD comes out and maybe or maybe not people remember it mm-hmm. and want to pick it up or buy it or rent it or whatever. Yep. Whereas this way it can go like it's going right into the right in front of the eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And that would be, you know, what with all these unions, like yep. the millions and millions of people. Well, it's specifically 500,000 kids in grade 11 in Canada and about, I forgot the number, 300,000 in the U.S. Yeah. So uh, it's a really great educational program Mm -hmm. and uh, we couldn't have made the movie without it. That's wild. And that's a, yeah, because movies now are being financed in all kinds of ways. So yep. in that case, it was like a combination of investment and pre-sale. Correct. Like a, a direct pre-sale, not just to yep. the public, but yep. to uh, interested parties. Yeah. And you're putting together private investor people who are yep. capitalists together with the uh, yep. the union workers. Yeah, we say it's like the United Way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant, though, because it, you know, it binds all that together in a, yep. good, in a good, solid way. Yeah. And because, I mean... Because th- those two groups not understanding each other or not wanting to, or yeah. not caring to, yeah. is what led to the situation that... Exactly. So there's a, a, there's a bizarre little parable just within that. But in truth, all of the people that were the philanthropists that uh, were investors, um, they believe in it because it's a Winnipeg story that is extremely instructive you know some of those people their ancestors were very much on the side that opposed uh, the strike mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna say they don't care maybe they care more because their ancestors were on the side that opposed it but enough time has gone by that both sides can learn from the depiction of the story. Mm. And like I say, in a interesting story, you get to learn from the reactions of all the people involved, you know? So um, that's pretty important. So I find it gratifying, heartwarming, and uh, not very surprising that so many Winnipeggers um, got behind it. How do you feel walking around the city now? After these 15, 13, 15 years of... Well, <laughs> I'm a bad one. I can uh, stop at every corner and tell you what happened at some point in our history just because in all my research, I, I just have you know, amassed a big exploding brain's worth of like <laughs> uh, historical tidbits. Until now, and this is a really great place to be now, until now, I'd be like, oh, that could be a location. Mm-hmm. That could be a location. But now that we're done the movie, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but the the locations that are in the movie are so iconically Winnipeg. Yeah. It's like the best travelogue ever. The legislature. It's the mm-hmm. most beautiful building in town and arguably, you know, the West. Uh, or places like uh, it's place you've probably gone by a lot but you've never been inside 
the James Street Pumping Station. Oh my goodness! I've seen pictures inside there. Uh, some videos from when they were trying to develop it. Yeah, some it's shots. And it's, it's like that it's steampunk, right? It's yeah, the old old. It's like that Charlie Chaplin movie. What's that one with all oh, the, the one gears? where it becomes uh, yeah it becomes a part of the machine. It's the fascinating. Machine. So that's a big part of our movie. Just the exchange, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Chicago, the North, yeah. all built around the same time. Yeah. So and not torn down. Yeah. So it's the best travelogue of Winnipeg ever, and it's Winnipeg as itself, not disguised as somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for once. Yeah. Well, maybe not for the first time, but for no, not for the first time. In but a big way, though. Yeah. Like it's in a, a in a way that's really tailor made. Like 1919 yeah. is the perfect era yeah. for the exchange. And there's a lot of movies where they go to make the story of something that happened at a place, yeah. and the place just doesn't look like yeah. that, and so they have to go and find. Yeah. So, and typically that's when they'll come to a place like Winnipeg and say, yeah, we, we, need, we need this to look like Missouri in 1890. Yeah. All we had to do was cover up a few signs, you know, mm -hmm. like that's all. We just, we wanted Winnipeg to play itself. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. It must feel good. Yeah, Maybe. that is, it was actually kind of spooky because we were in buildings where, you know, uh, events of the general strike were, yeah. transpiring so did you feel anything uh it was pretty spooky sometimes you know feeling the ghosts <laughs> yeah yeah no we were in one warehouse in particular uh on mcdermott 246 mcdermott where you know you're looking at those fur beams and you go mm -hmm. that was there and it does not take a lot when you see an actor in costume yeah to time travel like it's time travel it's yeah. freaky <laughs> yeah there's some amazing buildings down there too there's that one right on mcdermott and albert i think and it's that that one that's kind of it's a two or three story the futon factory is in the bottom okay and now yeah the it's the old floor, telegram building yeah and the second floor it was a for all the it was a printing place too like right. a newspaper or whatever yeah. and the second floor is actually structurally engineered to hold the old printing oh, presses oh isn't that interesting like that. yeah so yeah it's a lot of you learned that about a building and you yep. go oh so you could put something yeah something quite heavy in there mm -hmm. you know, one bizarre story was a location that we wanted to be our underground printing shop mm -hmm. actually had an old printing press in oh it. nice yeah. so <laughs> just things like that ready made yeah. just sitting there waiting for it yeah that's wild. Well, that's great. Thanks, Danny. You're welcome. I'm going to let you <laughs> think about sleep. things now. Yeah. <laughs> Stirred up a lot of memories. See how things go, how they transpire for the future. Yeah. Good luck with the movie, man. Thank you. Uh, and now I'm going to edit a bit of video for some of our Instagram posts. Oh, fun, fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, social media. Though. Yeah. Get on that, too. Yeah. It's the 80th hat you'll be wearing. Yeah. Ooh, I learned a lot about Instagram in the last little while. Whether <laughs> you want it to or not. Hmm. It's always the way. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, that was gas. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, you bet. Hey, it's my angel just jumping, popping in, just popping, jumping in to say that, uh, yeah, we did an update with Danny. If that all wasn't enough, then uh, we got in touch with Danny and he gave us this update on what was going on. 
in his life just before they released the movie Stand, or as they were releasing it, I guess. It was in, in mid-stride, so... Um, yeah, so we're going to jump right in to that aspect of the interview. It was a phone interview. It was Interestingly enough, it was one of the first interviews I did with the new audio board where we could do phone interviews. And of course, we've been doing those forever. But there you go. Danny setting the standard, helping us set the standard here on the Manitobaville podcast. Okay, so we're going to jump into that part of the interview just after this little break. I'm looking for the guy who wears all the hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which one's on today? Uh, today, it's sort of publicist, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing quite a bit of publicity for the U.S. release. Nice. And hence, hence, I'm a little bit voice groggy. Oh, that's okay. It shows it shows mm-hmm. uh, busyness, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's everybody know you're not just, you know, sitting around eating bonbons. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, last time we talked, I just posted our interview uh, from, I, it was January 2019. That was just after the holidays. Wow. So. Um, what did yeah. I say at that time? Did I say, yeah, it'll be out in March? I think you said, yeah, it's like out right away. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to move to Miami. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, see everybody, bye. Um, I'll be back for the hockey games. Something like that. But, <laughs> but um, no, I can't remember. Um I can't remember. I th- no, you just. I, I you, think you no, said I it think was... I might have referred to the fact that it would soon be at uh, yeah. film festivals. Yeah. And we got to one. Okay. And COVID shut us down. Yeah, because it was going to be in the fall. I think before you were even starting that process. Uh, well, no, the film festivals fall. Uh, the film festivals were going to be in. I'm talking U.S. It was mm-hmm. going to be in. Oh, I'm sorry, January 2019. Yeah. Wow, so it hadn't even come out in Canada. Yeah, I think you were still you know, just finishing touches and getting the, right. uh, the first yeah, push yeah, yeah. going. So, yeah. yeah. So that was, this is what have you been doing last two years? <laughs> well, so yeah, finishing touches over the course of, uh, 2019 summer. Mm-hmm. Then, so we had a huge, uh, uh, premiere here at the concert hall. It was like the concert hall was just packed. Mm-hmm. That was September 23rd. And then, Sorry, back up. We premiered it during the uh, Toronto International Film Fest, but not officially in it. So okay. we were there during that time. Is that what they we call uh, out of competition airings? Yep. Okay. Yep. So we had four sold out screens, did really well. That's how we got our distribution deal. Mm-hmm. Um, then September 23rd, we premiered in Winnipeg. Then we were prepping, and the film came out in Canada on November 29th, which is a Thursday. Okay. Usually, a Canadian film might get one week. We got three, so it was mm-hmm. fantastic. Who picked up and, your distribution? Uh, Cineplex. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And we were in 26 theaters across the land, at least in the first week, then it dropped down a bit and dropped down a bit. And we achieved in that period the number one Canadian movie at the box office. So that was right, quite a feat. Yeah, yeah, no one can take that away from us. No. Then uh, there's we a song were... in there. There's a song in there, by the way. Hmm. If you look around, you can pull it up. We were uh, then in the process of doing the U.S. film festivals. There was like 
six lined up in March, April, May, mm-hmm. and we got one done in Chicago. And I'm coming home from Chicago, and COVID just shuts down the world. My daughter yeah. had to come back from Germany where she was studying. Wow! And yeah. so during those first six weeks, I took the time to get us an agent. So actors can have agents, mm-hmm. and movies can too. So we got an agent for the film. Okay. And that person is uh, pitching it all over the world. So mostly they do international, like they get, you know, a TV deal for Germany or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing we got going was for the September long weekend, it was going to be released in theaters in the United States, up to 1,200 theaters. It was just wow. fantastic. Yeah. And then we had to push it. So we pushed it to December 1st, thinking, mm-hmm. oh, there'll be no COVID by then. Mm-hmm. Wrong. Like, December 1st was, like, yeah. just the worst. Because it ramped up all through there. Mm-hmm. In the States, it just went crazy. So then we switched to an online model, virtual cinema, mm-hmm. which means people can watch in their home, but some of the money goes back to the bricks-and-mortar theaters. Right. So and, it's, it's still like a theater model as far yep. as uh, tickets and, yep. and proceeds. And, and so that just started January 1st. Okay. So I'm fully into that for the next couple months at least. Yeah. Plus, it made us eligible for an Oscar, ah. not a drive, but an, a nomination bid. So mm-hmm. first, you got to try and get the nomination. Yeah. Then once the nominations come on March 15th, then there's like bit of a campaign period so so that's for, i think uh, our like best foreign film category no best foreign films are uh not in english oh, this is okay. for best song best score well it's in canadian <laughs> uh <laughs> well, that's so okay so uh, so regular categories then yeah okay. just all the categories Main competition I, oh nice well that's even i better. think our sure i think our chances are slight to none yeah. but that's part of what i'm doing well it gets you it, it's um that's more networking anyway that that's how people it is and doing into the business doing things like you know just emailing the members of the academy mm-hmm. in the music division blah 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 yeah. so i'm sitting here right now waiting for this woman to uh get back to me you can email the academy you pay for that right mm-hmm. but they have to approve what you're mailing emailing okay. them so okay. just waiting for that that's neat yeah mm-hmm. so so um yeah that, that that i guess is a whole new world then as far as making contacts and just talking to people you've probably never talked about or talked to yeah who you know because so, a lot of those people are former actors directors and like name people who we'd all recognize hey i'm not quite talking to them but I mean, well you know what emails, I mean. communicate yeah these yeah. emails will go to yeah. Uh, in the case of the music academy, it's all the people that write scores. Mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling a lot of the academy is retired people. Mm-hmm. Don't know for sure, but yeah, I think it is. So. Like people that have long, a long career and that they trust their judgment and mm-hmm. been around. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. that's what I'm doing. Neat. So, um, yeah, I guess the, with everything that happened, then one of the big things we talked about last time was the financial stresses. Um, having to go find the money and, and, you know, manage it responsibly, get the film made, get it into distribution. 
So I guess yep. you're still in the midst of that stress right now where you're waiting for the revenues to um, like make everybody whole again at the very least. Well, my the initial stretch was stress was that the movie wouldn't even get made at all mm -hmm. and I'd lose all that money. Mm -hmm. uh, so that stress is over. Um, this is a much, much happier stress. Let me tell you, just, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you got some to, movie. Yeah, you got some to, to to show people. Exactly. Yeah. Now we got a steak to sell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you put some pepper on it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So what what else? Had I I I I did read. Uh, I didn't bother you at the time because uh, you'd you'd gone you'd gone down um, pretty hard at one point. Uh, you had a heart attack, and you're talking about oh that yeah. So that media. was. That was September 30th, so right after the premiere. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, should have seen that coming because, like, I literally had a dozen uncles who had open heart. Remember, mm -hmm. all of our uncles had open heart in, like, yeah. the 20s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. And I thought, you know, they're fat, smoking, mm -hmm. drinking guys. Yeah. I was You're fit. clean living. You're clean. You yeah. play hockey. Well, yeah, you all... I, I played hockey, but I wasn't eating clean. I still uh, ate, like, an 18-year-old. So just... Okay garbage especially out of the house not in the house but yeah. so fries kfc like the whole bit oh, okay. i had a 95 percent blockage wow but i was super lucky i fell on the ice while i just kneeled because i was passing out mm -hmm. got to the hospital within a half an hour got a stent put in and there was no damage whatsoever oh good and subsequent to that um i to return to like even more strenuous stuff and the doctor said <laughs> yeah. that kind of condition where you look fit uh -huh. but you have an artery blockage is how marathon runners just die at the side of the road yeah so i was very very lucky but in addition to the diet it was the stress of making the movie mm -hmm. um there was about three months where if i slept an hour a day that was it it was just awful insomnia so that'll do it. Mm, wow. Did anybody score a cheap goal on you when you were going down? <laughs> no, I was actually playing a great game. Okay. But nobody just came up and took an opportunity. <laughs> no. Okay, good. They care. They care about you then. Yeah. And yeah. also, um, like, they were together enough that they instantly said, let's get medics here. And mm -hmm. It's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, with playing with, you know, adults, they're all of, uh, they've probably all seen stuff like that before and know of it yeah. or worry about it. And, themselves. you know, in, in the month after, mm -hmm. I heard of two guys that did pass away oh. on the ice. Wow. People you knew so, or? Uh, not really, yeah. but I knew where they played. Yeah. Yeah. So I've really made uh sleeping and eating right and lots of exercise my new thing so i'm just way more into staying alive and versus stressing myself out do you find that like that kind of change that's a psychological change a physical change do you find like people in the in the business of movies and stuff everybody says oh they're so heartless so they're just they have no feeling. They just cancel stuff or they'll sign things up or whatever. But do you think a part of that is you kind of have to be that way because you can't, work, you know, if you work as a movie executive, you can't wear your emotions on your sleeve. You can't live 
Well, see, my my particular instance was uh, I was so personally invested, both emotionally, Mm -hmm. like it truly was a labor of love, and financially to the extent that other people aren't. For some people, it's just a job. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually aspire to that phase of the career where you can say, well, if this movie happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, because you can the, still you can still have the same work ethic, intention, uh, desire for success, but you can sort of yeah, you just sort of moderate how yeah. how you emotionally respond. This this yeah. was just way beyond that. So yeah. you know, luckily I lived, and I wouldn't do it that way again. You've you've grown as an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, it's more of a business perspective. Like you can't kill yourself over this stuff. Has it changed your artistic approach? Mm, I don't think so. I'm developing a new project right now. And, you know, I still want to write the best script we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rick Chafe and I are doing it. And, no, I think artistically it doesn't. But I also don't care if this movie does not get made. Yeah. Okay which is healthy, you know, like, yeah, just move on to something else. Yeah. You can let the uh, movie speak for itself at certain, through all the phases mm-hmm. and judge it and say, yeah, okay. Not gonna push something if it's not whatever, yep. but push it if it is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let it, let it do the, the work. Like yeah. a swing and a hammer, right? A lot of people swing a hammer and they, they are the hammer. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, then you learn about it and you start letting the hammer do the work. <laughs> yeah. You're still hammering nails. So that's the important part. Okay, so how how is it being taken, the movie? Um, how are people responding to it that have seen it? On January 1st, we got a review in Variety, which was quite a minor miracle because just to get a review in Variety was, uh, it's just really hard to do. So that is like the preeminent industry magazine. They dug it. We got this great review. And... Uh, people to see the movie just love it and it's really interesting now as americans see it how they see parallels to the present day so mm-hmm. that's always intriguing as a canadian but also um gratifying that you know the story has legs the story is universal that's pretty cool so and and i guess everybody's getting a taste of the visceral side of that too like we can talk about 1919 and look at pictures and read articles and you know people's experiences but this this what happened in the states kinds of puts you right in that mindset and and you get to see what that looks like and the fear and the anger that it you know the unknown that's going on at the time yeah and and human life at you know at risk literally like right there for sure you know down there you you have you know people taking a stand but everybody can kind of see that they're taking it from a misinformed um position mm-hmm. as we see it as they see it they're taking it from a righteous uh yeah. we're saving everybody position um yet everybody else is feeling hyper threatened by by that group and uh so how does that correlate to 1919 i was just wondering about that did the people on the ground you know what was the uh, propaganda of the day and how does it well i, I just just wrote a press release about this so it's it's a pretty striking and eerie parallel uh aj andrews who we call aj anderson in the uh 
uh, movie has all the authoritarian bent of Trump and he's literally doing midnight tweets hmm. in the form of typing on the typewriter mm -hmm. for the newspaper that he controls. Okay. So, you know, it's the same business of speaking to an audience that's a closed audience that's going to believe everything you say as uh, hmm. literal truth. So that's a parallel. Another parallel is the appointment of the specials here in Winnipeg, which was, remember, a extrajudiciary police force, a private mm -hmm. police force, mm -hmm. which was basically doing AJ's bidding, right? arresting the people he wanted arrested, and on Bloody Saturday, being a uh, alter ego for his desires. Mm -hmm. So... That's what you had on January 6th. So that is, I find, um, this, I mean, it's beyond troubling, but the parallels are just like, ay, ay, ay. Yeah. And a lot of people. So it just goes to show you that, you know, this business about history repeating itself, well, I kind of dislike that term because it's less history repeating itself than people aren't changing. <laughs> yeah. Well, who said that? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Just rhymes. Yeah, yeah. it's Mark Twain. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing over and over and over. The brown yeah. shirts, the proud boys, the guys you're talking yeah. about. Did yeah. they have a name back then? Did they call themselves anything special? Well, they were specials. I don't know of any other term for them than that. Or did they wear anything that was, you know, so they, they could did, they had a, a white armband. So it was very much like the brown shirts. Yeah. White armband. Yeah. To, to look peaceful too, right? Jeez. Uh, well, I, I don't know if they were intended to look peaceful. There's a picture well, of white's them. white's the color of surrender and, you know, peace and happiness. Except it, it did not look that way because every time they had the white armbands on, they also had, uh, batons mm. so the pictures of them walking down the street there's a picture of them walking you know a hundred wide down the street mm. they didn't look peaceful yeah. <laughs> they look like thugs so in their minds yeah they probably oh geez and that's the thing you get into the murky mind of just the average guy who signs up for that were they doing it for money for love for they yeah, some were doing right it side. for money because it was good money but they were being chosen from the part of society that was anti-strike. They were largely the sons of wealthy businessmen. So it's exactly what you see on January 6th. It was a crowd that was disposed only to Trump's side of the Oregon. Will it get into theaters in the States, do you think? Or is that... The... Well, it is, in fact, in some yeah. bricks-and-mortar theaters. Yeah. Some are open, okay. and it's it's in it in places like, you know, Arizona. But they're and... talking about in the States, it's going to take a long time before they get back to normal yeah. with movies. I'm and... I'm guessing that it's not going to have much of a theatrical run. Okay, but so it'll be more of an digital. Online. Yeah, digital is just so the game right now, so we're... We have months and months of digital to do. <laughs> and do you think then, like looking forward at, at the revenue ramifications, do you see 
that being not much of a difference. Like if you push it this way, then probably the revenues and the viewerships will be similar to theatrical releases and mm. DVD rollouts and stuff like it's that. It's so hard to say. I mean, or do you feel if confident? If it was an like, if it was a non-COVID year, we could have probably done significant um, revenue in theaters. So that will forever be gone. Mm. But then, you know, our sales agent might be able to get more TV. So it's just, it's really hard to say. But I mean, movies have a payback window of as long as 15 to 20 years. So yeah, it's not all about the first year. Well, yeah, people probably still buy silent movies on DVD and things like that. Mm -hmm. As long, I guess the rights issues lapse after a certain time, long time. But yeah, they seem to find a way to even Waterworld made money. So, <laughs> then they stopped worrying. <laughs> I remember it was such a big deal for a long time in the press, yeah. and then they made, and then they announced, "Oh yeah, we've made our money back through TV, DVD," and and everybody's like, "Oh, oh, you did? <laughs> oh, that's not a story anymore." So, so I guess that's a good that's the good sign. Um, so with the next projects you do, does that color how you would plan a rollout for that? Definitely, just definitely, in ways as big as how you finance them, how you shoot them, where you shoot them. I'm very, very committed to Manitoba shooting, of course, mm -hmm. but in my subsequent projects, if there are ones, who knows, maybe I'll never make another movie again. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to have a way greater amount of Manitoba involvement. So that's a vision for the future. Yeah, I've been. I was thinking like even twenty years ago, not maybe not full twenty years, but it it seems like the cert like because we really developed a good service industry for out of town productions. But yeah, we and never, that's an important part of the business. Yeah, but we never really developed that cocoon or that incubator for uh, to really support directors, writers, you know, the kind of you know above the line or front end development mm -hmm. of movies yeah. for homegrown stuff. It seems like somebody makes a I movie mean, here and they're like, A, I'm really lucky to get to make a movie that I had a hand in developing and even luckier than to find financing for yeah. that outside of applying for a grant, like to do it, you know, like, like they do in the States. Yeah. So, it's, it's unfortunately a stupid, expensive production process. So that kind of cash is just not available to the domestic industry it's possible to make a smallish movie, um, maybe even a Netflix movie that would be completely domestic. But, um, but do you think people locally who have big, stupid money, uh, who can't now put it into developing, uh, businesses where people, they expect people to come to physically, do you do you think they'll turn and say, "Well, we can, you know, we have, we have to give them something at home. We can entertain them." They may, but as a rule, no, because it just does not have a um, verifiable, guaranteed revenue stream. You know, so it really is angel investor mm -hmm. type investing. Mm -hmm. So I think basically no. And I guess you've but probably, me, through through your process, you've probably kicked the, every rock over and you, you oh, know, yeah. inside out where the, yep. the financials but, are. Uh, make no mistake about it. If there were a movie that 
did become an international hit and pulled in a lot of cash, that would be the single greatest way to ensure that there would be more investors involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing says, was it? Nothing says success like success. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Yeah. The big flame for the moths. Yeah. Well, I hope yours, I hope yours does, you know, a booming business as we move forward and Lord knows everybody's at home wanting to watch something. And maybe like you say, with the, uh, with the similarities to what's going on now, then people will be yep. more interested. And what I can tell you is that it will be coming out digitally in Canada. We're working on that deal. We had hoped to do the digital release simultaneously in the U S and Canada, but it got so screwed up with the U S delayed the mm -hmm. digital release there. So yeah, there's just, um inconvenient COVID, that's for sure yeah so now the canadian and u.s deals will be separate hmm. well maybe that's not a bad thing <laughs> uh well it'll, it's a canadian company doing the canadian thing yeah. so yeah that's a good thing. yeah exactly okay well i'm, I'm not going to keep you because you're obviously uh i appear to get talking to these people and, and promoting the movie and and uh, making a big success run so Thank you for, for catching up with us. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for the clue. Okay, thank you, Danny. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, we should talk to Danny, I guess, at some point. Get a little update. What's going on? An update on the update. On the update. Updated version. We'll try and do that this summer to see uh, what's going on, how the movie did do, and uh, what's new in the world of Danny Sure. Anyway, uh, this is Mahangel. This is the Mantobaville podcast. This is your cue to tell a friend. Please tell a friend. And uh, <laughs> word of mouth will get us everywhere. It'll get us everything we need. Okay, so there you go. It's a beautiful summertime shaping up here in Manitoba. So get out camping if you can. If uh, there's places to camp, if you're dealing with the flood, hopefully the weather is nice enough to correct things in your communities. And, um, yeah, it's just like that. It's one of those years. Last year was one of those years, the year before, the year before that. We have to stop polluting the planet and correct some of this if we can. It's uh, not good. So, anyway, thank you for tuning in to the Manitobaville podcast. Remember to search for Manitobaville. In your podcatchers and your social media, tell your friends. Okay, and get back outside to summer. If you, I think you should have been out already. You'd listen to this on headphones, maybe. <laughs> Playing it on your phone, setting it down beside your, uh, your hammock, right? Because you're in a hammock and you're swinging in your hammock and you're enjoying the old podcast. Okay, well, we're looking forward to in introducing some new, um, new initiatives here. And we will get to those just down the road. So tune back in. Stay tuned. Uh, check out some of the old episodes. And we will get back at you um, soon as possible. Soon as possible. We're going to rerun some of these old shows through the summer break. And then we'll get back to you with the season two. Okay? Sounds good? Sounds good to me. All right. Take it easy. And remember, the Manitobaville podcast is copyright 2022. Rodeo Road Studios. Mm -hmm.